He's a retired police lieutenant. As a sergeant, he was involved in a fatal shooting involving armed carjackers. He's here to talk about the incident, the chaos, the impact on him, the legal implications, and how he uses his experience to help others. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. If you enjoy the Law Enforcement Today podcast, do me a big favor. Tell a friend. And if you're able, if you got a few moments, leave an honest review and rating. But most importantly, tell a friend or two or three. Calling us from New Jersey, we have retired police lieutenant Mike Felace on the phone. Mike, thanks for being a guest on Law Enforcement Today's show. Very much appreciated. Hey, John, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Now, in addition to being a retired police lieutenant, which is going to talk about some things in his career that had a huge impact on him, he is also a podcast for the host of the, the co-host of the show, The Suffering Podcast. Get more details on our website, thesufferingpodcast.com. Now, Lynnhurst, New Jersey is an area I know well. My aunt lives there. My recently departed past uncle lives there as well. And it's a, a nice area. It's very close to the East Rutherford area, Rutherford, New York. Uh, a lot of people commute from there, correct? Yeah, it's, it's, they're, they're all our surrounding towns. I mean, going some, from south to north, it's, it's Linhurst, Rutherford, East Rutherford. Yeah. You know, so they're all, they're all connecting towns. And so it's pretty it, much the same, same makeup communities. We all know each other. While it may not be a big community, you guys have more than your fair share of crime problems. You know what? I mean, it's, it's a nice small town. It's, it's a very close-knit town, but we're surrounded by, we don't have any highways that run to our town, but we're surrounded by them. Uh, we have Route 3 that runs on one side of us. We have Route 17, which is a major artery in Bergen County here that ends in Lynnhurst. And we have Route 21, which runs on our, our west side of town. Route 21, if anybody knows the area, runs from Newark to Patterson, which aren't, which aren't the nicest places in New Jersey. Right. So you get some spillover. And one of the things I tell people all the time, they'll say, I don't understand. I live in a really nice neighborhood. How did this happen? Well, criminals travel. Criminals steal cars. Carjacking now is a big deal. They take public transportation. Not that often, but usually they'll steal cars. They'll look for people in more affluent communities to rob and pillage because that's where the money is. They're not going to steal from their own towns. You know, you, you, you steal a car from your own town. You're driving around in your town. Someone's going to notice it. Absolutely. So they go to the other towns and take cars from there and take them back to where they live. Absolutely. Now, during your career, and how long was your career in Lyndhurst Police Department? I started over for the Bergen County Sheriff's Department in 96, transferred to Lyndhurst in 99. I got a total of 20 years in the system. Well, thanks for your service. I appreciate it. I, I know that part of your career was, and I say marred, it doesn't mean and if someone did something wrong, but you went through a shooting. And part of, I did a little research. Part of this is something the media loves to do is that they love later on to come back and say, there's unanswered questions. Is there something going on? Is Were the police, you know, crooked? Was there excessive force? All these things that seem to follow police shootings. I want you to clarify something. 
my entire career, I was involved in four shootings. The first two, I never fired a shot back. Uh, unlike what the news media would tell you, it didn't happen. There are other close calls where we didn't fire a gun. And that was commonplace where I didn't, other officers didn't. The last two were, were lengthy affairs. But no one I knew of ever wanted to go say, hey, look, I want to get in a shooting tonight and I want to kill somebody. Yeah, that's not what we get into this business for. You know, the, the old saying is protect and serve. You know, I, the, the most enjoyable things in my career were not running into burning buildings, not responding to car accidents. You know, I, I was never the hero type. I was never a front and center type. I was the type of guy just driving down the street. You see kids throwing a football outside. I'd get out of the car in uniform, throw the football with them. That's what my career was all about. I never got into this business to pull my gun on someone. No, and I, I wish I had more of those experiences. And unfortunately, while they, they were a highlight of my career, they were very rare and very, very infrequent because we were so busy. Well, you know, that, that, that's the thing with a small town like Lenhurst. You know, you have time to do that. You know, you, you have time to you know, just pull up by a shopping center and walk in front of, you know, you, like our local you pull in front of and you just walk in and greet people, you know, just showing that police presence. It's, it's not a... It's a busy town, don't get me wrong, but it's not overly busy where you don't have five or ten minutes to just go interact with the community. So in your career, and I want to get back to this incident, and by the way, I love policing. I love police work. The reality is, in the end, it didn't love me back the way same way. And I'm not saying it's a negative, I'm just saying that's the fact. Because I left, and everyone I know in police work that does four years, two years, one year, 20 years, 30 years, walks out of it, changed in some way, dinged by what they went through. We, we call it dented. You know, that, that's why we, we started up our uh, 501c3 called the Dented Development Project. But we call it dented. You know, a dented thing could still work. It may not be, it may not work as good as it, it used to, but like, it's just like a car driving down the road. A car could drive with dents, but if a car is broken, it's not going to work. So that, that's, that's the motto for our podcast. You know, we're, we're pretty dented, but we're not broken. Everybody I know pretty much on this show says, yeah, I'm damaged goods, but I'm okay with that. And I want to just say that your analogy is excellent because if you watch NASCAR, for example, a lot of winning cars wind up dented, scratched up, dinged up, bent up, but they're still running and they're still competitive. And that's the reality of what a lot of these law enforcement, other first responders, military, victims of crime they're dented, but they come out and they're still operating at top level. You know, how, how many of these NASCAR cars do you see with tape over their fenders and everything, you know, their hoods flying off and everything else, and they're still running? You know, they're dented, but they're not broken. Some days I feel like I'm, I've got a lot of Bondo and tape just holding me together. I, I want to go well, back yeah, to I, this incident. I read the um, newspaper article, and I can't remember which one it was, but they tried to throw a lot of out into this shooting without going into the incidents of the shooting which we will cover in a moment do you find in your opinion that these types of news articles looking to create controversy where there really isn't any are harmful oh without a doubt it's media sensationalism you know they wouldn't sell newspapers if they said this cop is a hero he was great he did exactly what he was supposed to do what he was paid to do you know what the town expected him to do they want to throw that cloud of doubt in there so people keep reading and you know it's clickbait for the media and all that and nobody's going to buy the paper if you know the cop comes out looking like a hero because unfortunately nobody wants to like cops these days yeah and it, I, I don't know that that's a new thing it was going on in the 80s when i was a young police as a matter of fact i've been thanked more for my service now mike than ever when i was on the job 
Well, I could count on one hand how many times I was thanked, you know, back when I was active. Now it's like, oh, I'm a retired police officer. Well, thank you for your service. Yeah, and the reality is I oftentimes don't, don't know how to respond to that. Um, I think, and I get this from you, and I get it from a lot of my brothers and sisters in law enforcement, when cops do really heroic things, you like you said, the news, peop- the news people don't want to report it. When cops do really heroic things and they do have that f- few brief moments in front of a microphone, they're like, I'm not a hero. I'm just doing my job. I get it. I get why they deflect and say, no, you know, I, I work with heroes. I don't consider myself one. However, when it- cops do really heroic things, I think we need to start saying, yeah, I, I did. But that's what I was trained to do. And that's my job. You, you don't go to your accountant every day and say, thank you for, uh, you know, for, for saving me some money, you know, and, and that, that's what the accountant's paid to do. That's what law enforcement is paid to do. I was never an awards and accolades guy. You know, they say, you know, the, these awards, a cop went above and beyond his call of duty. What is our call of duty as a police officer? Every shift could go from bringing a life into the world, saving a life to taking out a life out of the world. There's no above and beyond any of that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And my biggest fear in police work was having to deliver a baby. And I, I came very close to having to do it once. And I was petrified. Thank goodness the EMTs got there. We're talking with retired police lieutenant Mike Felice on the Law Enforcement Today show. He is also a podcaster. The name of his podcast is The Suffering Podcast. Get more details online, thesufferingpodcast.com. When we return, we're going to talk about the shooting incident that changed his life and the after effects of what he's doing about it today. This is Law Enforcement Today show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. If you're on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app, be sure to look for me and follow me. My name's John, the letter J, Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. You can also search for at L-E-T Radio Show. That's John J. Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, at L-E-T Radio Show on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app. conversation with retired police lieutenant Mike Felice on the Law Enforcement Today show. Mike is, as a retired police, which is one of the best occupations in the world. He's also a podcaster and co-host of the show, The Suffering Podcast. Our website, thesufferingpodcast.com. Now, Mike, I want to take you back in your career. We're talking or alluding to this shooting you're involved in. Are you able to talk about some of the specifics? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's, it's all you know, went to the grand jury and everything. We were all cleared and everything. So there's nothing restricting me from talking about it. My concern is quite often, number one, there's the legal aspects of it. So I'm very sensitive to that. But the other one that I'm even more sensitive to is, to be honest with you, Mike, there's parts of my career I still don't talk about. I really don't want to talk about with people because they ask a lot of questions. I promise I won't do that. You can talk about it. And what you don't want to talk about is cool with me. Take us back to that night. Well, yeah, it was... Uh... It was a Monday night into Tuesday morning. It was September 15th into September 16th, uh, 2014. We were working the midnight shift, which is 1900 to 0700. It was a little after 2 o'clock in the morning. We get a, uh, a bolo from the town next to us to be on the lookout for a black vehicle, uh, black SUV, two occupants trying to break into cars in their town. Uh, I was the road supervisor that night. Uh, one of our guys sees the car coming through, speeding through our town, the, the suspect vehicle, uh, attempts to pull him over. The guy takes off from him. Our guy loses him. A little while later, another one of our guys sees the car cutting through town again, 
he start he goes he attempts to pull him over. The vehicle takes off from him again. Now they were traveling on one of our main roads in town. It's like I said, not right now it's two twenty, two twenty five in the morning, so on an early two Monday night into Tuesday morning, so there really wasn't any vehicular traffic or anything. So we, we allowed the pursuit to keep going. The suspect vehicle was doing about ninety miles an hour. Uh, they were coming uh, northbound on the main road, and I happened to be, I just turned southbound onto the same road. As I looked down at the roadway, the suspect vehicle was in my lane of travel doing 90 miles an hour coming at me head on. Uh, you know, obviously, he was on the wrong side of the road at that point coming straight at me. So I turned to the right a little bit to get out of his way. He turns. He was going so fast, he lost control of the car. The car was swaying from pretty much from curb line to curb line. This is a wide street. Uh, he winds up hitting a construction sand barrel. As he hits a sand barrel, the car turns sideways a little bit. Another car that was there pulled in behind him to try to block him in. The driver put the car in reverse, started ramming the police car. So we come up on the passenger side, guns drawn, you know, shouting commands, show me your hands. Um, he's backed into the police car, spinning the tires. He had his left hand on the steering wheel. He was looking through the passenger side window, staring me right in the face with his hand down between the uh, driver's seat and the center console. As we're shouting commands to him, guns drawn, he lifts up his hand, his right hand in a jerking motion, and that's when we went up firing on him. Um, turns out he had a stolen three fifty seven Magnum in his hand. That's uh, uh, a, yeah. a no-joke incident. That's where it's like... When I was you know, doing these it, things, Mike, I didn't really have a chance to think about it. You're going through, you're reacting, you're responding to your training, all this other stuff. You see gun and the gun being pulled, it changes everything. Well, you know, we the second, the first pursuing car, I should say, actually got a license plate off of it. So they got the license plate, which I, I remember to this day. It was Hotel Yankee 8170. He got the license plate. He gave it into dispatch. Dispatch ran it, and the car came back carjacked earlier that day mm-hmm. at gunpoint. So now we knew, you know, these guys were, they were there to play. You know, they weren't just out for a joyride. They were, you know, they were meaning they're some serious, serious criminals. business that night. Yeah, they're violent. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we knew that there was a possibility of a gun in the car. Um, as he backs into the car that, that tried to block him in, he's spinning the tires, staring me right in the face. Like I said, when he pulled up, that's when we fired on him. But the whole time, the road is filling up with smoke. I'm on the passenger side. The passenger side rear wheel is spinning. The tires breaking up. I'm getting hit with you know, burned rubber all up and down my face from, from the top of my head to, the, to my shoes was all filled with burned rubber. I had burn marks on my face, breathing in the, uh, the smell of burning rubber, which, which is something I could still recall today. Um, then at that point, the rear tire breaks out and now it's the rim on the ground. And when we shot him, his body went limp and his foot pressed down on the gas. Now the, the pedals to the floor. So the tire is spinning out of control. The, the, the tire blows out. Now it's rim on ground. Now I'm getting sparks from the rim hitting me in the face. So I have to shield my eyes. I take out my baton and I try to break and rake the passenger side window. Cause at some point I remember seeing a key in the ignition. So I want to put my baton in and shut the car off. As soon as I broke the window, I went to reach in. The passenger popped up right in my face. I never knew there was a passenger in a car. I guess what, what that highlights, two- Mike, is that the chaos that goes on in these scenes. And 
you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, especially people who aren't there. Uh, the uh, the politicians, the decision makers, the so-called activists, the news media, they love to pick apart things and go, well, they should have done this, they could have done that, they could have de-escalated here. But they weren't there, and they weren't going through it, and they didn't get to experience all the chaos. You just made a great point. You had no idea there was a passenger in a car. No, I mean, we talk about it. You get taught in the police academy about tunnel vision. You know, all law enforcement knows what tunnel vision is. That's when you're fixated on one object and you're not really aware of the objects around you. Um, it, I, I pretty much had tunnel vision. You know, I, I knew where the, that threat was, but I wasn't aware of any other threats. Right now, he was my number one threat, and I didn't know there was a number two threat. Um, so after, after I go into reach and, and shut the car off, passenger pops up in my face. Uh, we went up drawing down on him. Uh, our other, at this point, other cars had arrived on scene, and we carried ballistic shields in our cars. So one of the guys came up with a ballistic shield. We held down on a passenger because the way we were taught is if there's one person, there's two. If there's two, there's ten. All the windows were tinted, so we didn't know who if there was anybody else in the back seats or anything like that. So we went around breaking the windows out of the car, clearing the whole car. Then with the, the rear wheel spinning, uh, well, rim on ground, so I'm still getting sparks in my face. Uh, I go to take my baton and open up the passenger side door. The door handle broke off. So we had to take the passenger out of the, pull him out of the uh, passenger side window. And once they got him out and got him secured, I reached in and shut the car off at that point. Reaching into a, a car like that is... Uh a life and death moment in himself. Uh, we return our conversation with Mike Felice. We will talk more about that, but we're going to talk about the impacts of the shooting and not just that day, but the days after and then the weeks and years after and how it motivates him to do what he's doing today. This is the Law Enforcement Today show. We are talking with retired Lynnhurst, New Jersey Police Lieutenant Mike Felice. He's also a podcaster, co-host of the Suffering Podcast show. Their website is thesufferingpodcast.com. We're going to take a short break on our Law Enforcement Today show. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Another reason to like and follow us on Facebook, the mobile Facebook app. You can listen to the podcast there for free. So if you ever miss an episode of the Law Enforcement Today show, it's always on the mobile Facebook app. You know the one on your phone, which is free. It's easy to access the podcast and great articles, much more. By the way, feel free to send me a message. Say hello. If I can help you, let me know. That's on our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. Be sure to click like and follow. Return to conversation with retired police lieutenant Mike Felice, retired from Lindhurst, New Jersey Police Department. He is also co-host of the Suffering Podcast. Their website is thesufferingpodcast.com. Before we end the break, Mike, we're talking about the, the shooting incident you were involved in. And it involved two guys in a carjacked vehicle stolen. They're trying to elude police. They're on chase. Then they've got a violent rocking of the vehicle trying to hit police vehicles to get away. And then the suspect reached for a three fifty seven Magnum, which you said I believe was stolen. And at which time the guys opened fire. And then you found another guy in the car. Two things I want to get to real quickly before we deal with your story. One of the things I hear all the time is police stop people based on how they look. 
Were you able to tell how many people were in the car? No. Could, they, they could, had you, could you even tell what oh, their, their gender or age or sex or race was? I couldn't tell anything. It was a black vehicle. It was late at night. The windows were all tinted. We couldn't see anything inside the car. This is an experiment people can do all the time. And people fall for this every day, especially on social media. Some will say, oh, the police pulled me over because of this. I look like this. And I say, go take look for yourself. If you're driving a car and you get to a stoplight, look at the vehicles in front of you. Even here in Florida, with a lot of tinted windows. I can't tell. Even the non-tinted windows, usually you can't tell. High backrest, whatever it might be, glare. You get tinted windows, you can't tell. Vans, SUVs are almost impossible to tell how many people are in there. One of the biggest things we always were fearful of was stopping cargo vans because you never knew if there's one or 20 people in there. Yeah, I mean, like I said, with, with this car, we didn't know how many were in there. We couldn't see inside the car. I mean, you know, on a motor vehicle stop, you could light the car up and everything, and sometimes you could see head mo- heads moving in there, but we had no time to even do that. I, I couldn't tell you if there was one or 50 people in that car. Right, but you guys just, just reacted, and one of the questions I get all the time, and I, I see it all the time, especially on social media, is they'll say, and this gets back to news reports, they'll say the officer didn't know how many shots they fired or there's inconsistencies in what they say. Back in my day, we didn't have body cameras. And I remember being asked, how many shots did you fire? And I couldn't tell you. I had so, you talked about tunnel vision. I had so much tunnel vision, I couldn't tell you. I remember having a thirty-eight revolver getting in a gunfight with a murderer who stole a vehicle, did an armed robbery, was shooting at me with a forty-five semi-automatic. And I, I remember just thinking, man, I fired four shots. I got two left. And I'm in the middle of the street. I got no cover. And the guy was stumbling, trying to reload. I didn't know I'd shot him in the wrist. I ran up and tackled him. The thing was, I couldn't tell you when I fired, when I didn't fire, because I was so focused on the threat. So when cops today say, I didn't check the body camera, they make it sound like there's some sort of big, huge cover-up conspiracy. Was that a case with you guys? You know, we, we didn't have body cameras at that time. We didn't even have dash cams. There's there's no actual videos of the shooting. But like you said, you, you don't recall. I mean, you, you're, we, we were trained to, to shoot to stop the threat. Um, you know, I'm, I was also on a SWAT team. I was a submachine gun operator on SWAT teams. We, we did a, a lot of training, and we used to call it uh, a controlled pair. You shoot, you know, you fire two rounds, you know, at the range, you fire two rounds at a target and you reassess the situation. I thought in my mind, I fired two rounds. When the attorney general's report came out, it said I fired six rounds. Yeah. Total oblivious, totally oblivious to it. You know, you're, you're hyper, hypersensitive. You're, you know, you get, they call it, the other thing too, is they call it uh, audio exclusion. You know, you when you're at the range and someone fires around and you don't have your ears on, you know, you, you kind of get startled by it. When I fired that night, it sounded like like a golf clap. You know, I don't even remember the sound of gunfire that night. I would. Because I guess I would my, love my, to say, my ears shut down and all my other senses took over. Yeah, I would love to say I I don't understand it, but I'm saying 100. percent Yeah, it's it's you know, like I said, it's that your your sense, some of your senses shut down. And your other senses pick up. I mean, my eyesight was, was the main thing right there in my focus. You know, I don't even, I don't remember hearing anything. I know there were sirens going. There's a, there's a video of the incident when a police officer showed up later and there's still sirens going on. I don't remember sirens. I don't remember anything. When this incident was all said and done, the immediate aftermath, was there 
And you were a sergeant at the time, correct? That's correct, yeah. And the reason I say that is because people have this mistaken conception. As a supervisor, your responsibilities change. Uh, when I became a sergeant, I didn't really appreciate what sergeants did until I became one. Uh, so it's it's a fine line of making sure that the men and women who work for you are good. They're in good shape. They're taken care of and making sure they take care of the community and do all the proper procedures and policies, all that stuff. It's a very fine line. It's a juggling act. When a sergeant gets involved in a shooting, they go through the same things afterwards that everybody else does. The same criminal investigation, the same uh, grand jury stuff, the same news media, social media, all that other stuff. And then they have the psychological impact. Were you impacted right away or did it take some time? I don't want to say it was immediate, but it was shortly thereafter. I mean, you, you get like one of those like holy moments, like, you know, what what just happened? You know, we're, we're in a, a little town like this. Mine, mine was the first fatal involved shooting in Lynnhurst police history. You know, so nobody knew what to do. And now I'm the supervisor. You know, if an officer gets involved in something, you go to the supervisor. Now, if the supervisor's involved in something and I'm in charge of everything, who do I go to? That that was all going through my head. But the 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 effect, the, the psychological effects and the mental effects of it. You know, I, I was I was stunned. I was in shock. Your blood pressure goes through the roof. My heart was racing. Uh, I was con- like you said, as a supervisor, I was concerned about my guys and and girl. We had a female working with us that night. I was concerned about, I didn't know, all I knew was there was gunfire. I didn't know if he was firing back at us. I didn't know if one of my guys was shot. I didn't know what was going on. So I'm running around. Someone ran over to the driver's side and started giving the driver first. They pulled him out of the car and started giving him first aid and and CPR and all that stuff. Once I knew that was taken care of, now I focused on my guys to make sure they were okay. But there was nobody there to make sure I was okay. Right. Yeah, you know, and, and it's, it's a pretty it's, lonely feeling because you have this responsibility you have to do. But you, well, you know, you just like, went through a traumatic thing that's going to change your life forever. Right. And you know at that point your life is never going to be the same. But now you have, you, your shift isn't over at that point. You know, no. you have to secure the scene, you know, you have to look for the shell casings and mark the shell casings until the, the investigators get there and everything. And now this is all going through my mind. I'm checking, you know, I'm checking myself to see if I got shot. I'm checking it, all my other guys to see if they're okay. You know, and now, now you got to start barking out orders, get the crime scene tape out, shut this off. You know, I'm on the desk calling for, you know, surrounding towns to help with traffic. You know, it wasn't, there was no traffic at that point, but it was at a major intersection right over a highway that in a couple hours, it was going to be, you know, rush hour, morning rush hour. And we have a lot of New York city rush hour traffic, you know, in our area. So now I'm thinking, you know, get traffic, you know, I'm like just barking out orders at, you know, call the detective bureau, call the, you know, call the chief, call this department, call, call a crime scene unit all while just, you know, trying to keep control of myself. Fortunately for us, we have a very aggressive chief. That's he's on the road. He was on the road 24 hours a day. And he happened to show up about 10 to 15 minutes after the shooting was over. So once he got there, that was, that's when I got to calm down and decompress a little bit. We're talking with retired police Lieutenant Mike Valace, retired from Lindhurst, New Jersey police department. We're talking about the shooting he was involved in. And when we return we're going to talk about the impacts on him and what he's doing today. He is co-host of the Suffering Podcast. Their website is thesufferingpodcast.com. 
This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We're going to take a short break. I promise you, we've got so much more to talk about. You don't want to miss the conversation. Some real enlightening stuff heading your way on the Law Enforcement Today Show. We'll be right back. Missed an episode of Law Enforcement Today? You don't have to anymore because now you can listen to it on Podopolo, the free new app that makes listening anytime, anywhere so easy. Catch up on shows you've missed and chat with John J. Wiley right there too. Download for free on the Apple or Google Play stores. That's Podopolo. And John J. Wiley wants to hear from you inside Podopolo. Return conversation with retired police lieutenant Mike Felice on the Law Enforcement Show. He is, this means retired police from Lindhurst, New Jersey. He is co-host of the Suffering Podcast, our website, thesufferingpodcast.com. Mike, we're talking about the, the shooting you were involved in. Was it a fatal shooting? Yes, it was. And the reason yes, I asked that is, did you go through a point where you all, you ran through earlier, talking about the checklist of things you got to do, make sure everybody's okay, uh, C, CPR, first aid being administered to, to the shooting victim, crime scene protection, notifications, all those things. When you realized that the, the subject had died from the shooting, did you have a moment where you said, oh, my goodness, now this is a murder investigation and I could be in trouble? That's one of the first things that came to my head. You, you know, now you know that it's going to be a, a murder investigation for all intents and purposes. And, you know, I, I wasn't the only one that fired that night. There was three other officers that fired. But. Now you real, I mean, this got real. You know what I'm saying? It's not something like you see on TV. There's no commercial breaks. You know, you have to live that whole thing pretty much by yourself, you know, and try to get through those feelings. You know, no matter when I heard that the guy passed away, no matter how you look at it, we took a life out of the world. You know, bad guy or not, it was either us or him. Bad guy or not, he still has someone that loves him. And that was one of my main concerns is like, what's his family going to think? You know, I know he's, they were all over the media. I know he's got a sister and mother and a grandmother that love him. You know, and my heart went out to them. I always said I would love to sit down and talk to that family and give them my side of the story. Because like we were talking about before, the media only gives what they want to give. They don't give the full story. So they were getting dribs and drabs of what really happened. The passenger, when we got him out of the car, he gave a statement and told the whole story. They made a pact to, you know, do whatever they had to do to get away that night. And the car was carjacked and he knew there was a gun in the car. He went to jail. When he got out, he went back to his hometown and he started saying that the driver got knocked out from the accident. Uh, the police ran over, opened the driver's side door, started punching him in the face, and then shut the door, went around to the passenger side of the car, and started shooting at the driver. So that's what the family thinks. I mean, it's, it's the furthest thing from what happened. Well, that doesn't even make sense logically. You and I both know no, that exactly. makes no sense logically. The, the, the way people think, you just don't process that way. You don't make decisions that way. It doesn't happen. It's a knee-jerk reaction based on your training, and you go and you do what you got to do to neutralize the threat. And then when the threat's over, you go take care of business. It doesn't involve force. 
So to go through the whole process the way he described it doesn't make sense at all, logically. But people will believe it. Oh, yeah. People people will pick right up on that. And if they, if they, See, the, the thing is, John, if that's the only story they hear, that's the only story they're going to believe. You know, they never heard. My, even when the attorney general's report came out, uh, it was it was published. It was in a newspaper and everything else. And people still didn't believe it. They say, well, that that's not what really happened. That's not what we heard what happened. Yeah, because you never got because we're as law enforcement in an open investigation. We're not allowed to talk about it. No, you're, but everybody else that's involved in it is allowed to talk about it. Right. And the ones leading the charge quite often are the family's attorneys. So I, I want to change the focus back to you. And I agree 100 percent. It, it's unfair, but people re- need to realize that the people they're getting their information from are for profit. And they do that for a reason to get more eyeballs on their products so they can get more advertisers and raise the rates and make more money. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that's the way the reality works. In newsprint in particular, in the TV news, if it bleeds, it leads. And they're more horrific they can make it. That's exactly how they're going to do it. Yeah, without a doubt. Like I said, it's clickbait for their their media platforms. And, you know, it's just they, they really don't care who they step on along the way. As long as they're selling papers and getting news coverage and everything, they don't care who's who's under their right. feet as they're walking through the story. And what we don't hear about is afterwards. There had to be come, there come a point where you were just not okay anymore. No, it was it was almost immediate. I mean, that night after the shooting, you know, they put us in an ambulance, sent us to the hospital. Um, you know, you check your blood pressure and your vitals and all that, and you know, check your hearing because you know a lot of times people have some hearing loss and ringing in their head and everything else. Then after we went to the hospital and we got all checked out, um, they took us back to the scene. Well, they took our uniforms from us at the scene because they used it as evidence because of all the the tire, the, the burned rubber for, that was all over our uniforms. So they pretty much stripped us. They, they took our guns at the scene. They stripped us down out of our uniforms, put us in civilian clothes, sent us to the hospital, come back from the hospital. Now I'm sitting in, we had a command post there. I'm sitting in a command post in shorts and a T-shirt. And now all the news coverage is there. You've got helicopters overhead. You've got like all the local, you know, New York news stations there. And I just sat there watching the whole scene, just saying, like, like, what's going on? It was the most surreal moment in my life. And that's when it really hit me that all of these people are here for something that I did. I said, you know, I never felt guilty in it because I know I did what I was trained to do. So the only feeling, I just felt something dirty. You know, I felt like something, I just wanted to like go home, get out of my clothes, take a shower. But when I went home that night, I sat, I went down into my basement because I got a TV down there and I didn't want to bother the family and everything. I sat there and watched news coverage of, of my shooting for probably the next three hours. And I, I didn't get home that, that morning. Did the shooting happen at two twenty, two twenty five? I didn't get home till seven o'clock. I stayed up till 10 o'clock just watching news coverage of it. That's when the feeling started setting in that my life is never going to be the same again. His family's lives are never going to be the same again. That's when I really believe the onset of post-traumatic stress really started kicking in. Yeah. And one thing you said, I thought of immediately, you know, in the movies, there's a hero, there's a good guy, there's a bad guy. And while you do nothing wrong, everything you do is legal and justified all stuff. It doesn't change the effects afterwards. And 
There's no winners. There's no applause moment. There's no, are these great? We can go relax and have a beer with our friends and be fine afterwards. That never happened for you, did it? No, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It was always, it's almost, like I said, I was involved in the first fatal police shooting in, in Lynnhurst history. So I was that guy. You know, I'm not, I was no longer the friendly neighborhood cop who used to, like I said, get out and shoot basketballs with kids or throw footballs with them. I was that guy that was involved in the shooting. You know, and that, that still bothers me to this day. The reality is, I, I tell people I was involved in four shootings in my career. Fortunately, everybody lived. No one died. That really is the luck of the draw. It, it wasn't anything I did. Just like the guy dying wasn't because of some extra skill set you have. If they moved a half inch a different direction, things would change differently. But the after effect is you are impacted, and you've made a great point. His family's impacted as well. So you had to make a decision. I want to get into the suffering podcast. How did you decide this is something I want to do? Well, you know, I, I, I thought the, the best therapy for me, because I, I went through a real, real bad uh, time with, with post-traumatic stress. Um, they sent me to therapists that wasn't working. Then they sent me to another therapist who really, really knew the feelings that I was feeling. And he had a group therapy session, which was all cops involved in critical incidents. And I started feeling better after I started talking to these, these officers that were involved in, in critical incidents. Because, you you know, police officers would come up to me all the time and say, I know what you're going through. You have no idea no, what I'm going And you don't know what you unless do you, unless you were there. Unless you've been through it, you have no idea. Right. Now I'm in a group therapy with a bunch of cops who have been through similar situations. So we knew what each other was feeling. So at this group therapy, I meet Kevin Donaldson. Kevin Donaldson was a Roseland cop. He was involved in a, in a critical incident and me and Kevin hit it off. His, him and my brother, believe it or not, used to work together 25 years ago. So we kind of knew each other, but we didn't know each other. Well, Kevin started up the suffering podcast and he had me come in uh, to do an episode and talk about my shooting and the effects of post-traumatic stress. Is that when the, yeah. the thought of you joining the, the podcast became a reality? Ke- Kevin, started listening to the show that night. He called me up and said, I think we really have something here. He said, I want to take you on as a partner. And where can people so, get more information? Where can people listen to it? You can go to the sufferingpodcast.com. Uh, you can get it on any podcast outlet. The sufferingpodcast.com. Everything is there, correct? Retired Police Lieutenant Mike Flace, thanks so much for being a guest on the show and thanks for your service. All very much appreciated. John, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.